Welcome to the Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in the field of sports medicine and exploring a variety of topics related to the field of sports medicine. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. Before we get going with episode number two with Dr. Buford, just a few housekeeping items. First of all, feedback from episode one. We've had a tremendous amount of feedback um, after the episode with Dr. Andrews. If you haven't listened to it, check it out. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, please do. Uh, the email is thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any ideas of future episodes or if you're interested in being a guest in the podcast, please reach out to us. Um, second is social media. If you want to stay up to date with, with the show of anything up and coming in future episodes, please follow us on, uh, Instagram and on Facebook. Um, for Instagram, it's at the sports medicine podcast, uh, and please subscribe on Apple iTunes and SoundCloud, uh, or wherever else it is that you're listening to the podcast. Uh, if you want to give us a five-star review on Apple iTunes, that would be very, very helpful to us and help, uh, just increase exposure for the podcast. Uh, third is just podcasts in general. So I've been doing my best just to listen to as many podcasts as I can, uh, mainly just to try and out of interest and also just to try and uh, improve this podcast. One of the ones that I just finished is called Dr. Death. It's by a group called Wandery and it's about a neurosurgeon in the Dallas area a few years ago. Um, I think that this podcast is going to get a ton of publicity as it catches fire over the next few weeks and few months. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, you should. Anyone interested in anything to do with the healthcare world, particularly in the United States, uh, should check out this podcast. It's by a group called Wondery, uh, and I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it is phenomenal um, what is revealed in this podcast. Um, so check it out. It's called Dr. Death. Death. Anyways, after Dr. Death, the same group, Wandry, uh, I'm about halfway through it. It's not complete, but it's another podcast called Gladiator. And it is about the life of Aaron Hernandez, who is the tight end for the New England Patriots. Uh, He played football at the University of Florida. Uh, He won a Super Bowl. He was later convicted of murder and sentenced to life in jail. And then recently, he was found hung in his jail cell. Um, after this, his brain was donated to research and I think they found that he had one of the worst cases of CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, that they had ever seen. And, and it was presumed obviously to be a result of multiple concussions that he had sustained in his football career. Anyways, that got me thinking about concussions and we've actually got a couple of the world experts in concussions, clinical neuropsychologists that are going to be joining us for an episode in a couple of weeks that's going to focus on concussions in sport. This is a pretty topical subject right now in the sports medicine world. Uh, Down here in Texas, it's very topical in youth football. So I think that's going to be an awesome, awesome episode. So stay tuned for that in a few weeks. So finally, just a note on the episodes, we're going to try and make these episodes as broad based or as general as we can so that they apply to the greatest number of people interested in sports medicine. However, there are going to be segments of the individual episodes that might be more specific or technical. For instance, in this episode with Dr. Buford, we get into some of the specifics about orthobiologics 
including some of the specifics around PRP and mesenchymal stem cells. And I understand that these this isn't going to apply to everyone listening. Uh, I do keep this in mind, and I will try and make the podcast as broad as I can so that uh, you know it's applicable and, and many different people in the sports medicine world can get something out of it. But please keep in mind that there are going to be segments of episodes that might be a little bit more technical um, than others. Uh, so that's it. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Buford. He's an orthopedic surgeon down here in the Dallas area. Um, he's one of the experts in orthobiologics uh, and mesenchymal stem cell therapies. Um, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. That'll keep you up to date on anything going on with the show. And send us your feedback. You can email us at thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Um, and if you're interested in being a guest on the show, send us an email. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoy this episode. Episode two is sponsored by Trumo BCT, formerly known as Harvest Technologies. They're a company that specializes in autologous biologics, including platelet-rich plasma and bone marrow aspirate concentrate. They're a global leader in blood component therapeutic apheresis, including cellular and autologous biologic technologies. They believe in the potential of cells to do even more for patients than they do today. As innovators with over 40 years of experience in cell separation, Trumo BCT is committed to providing autologous biologic technologies that deliver consistently reproducible results that clinicians and healthcare organizations can trust. Through their service and support, they enable physicians to use cutting-edge technologies, increase patient access to autologous therapies, and continue to advance next-generation technology. So thanks very much to Trumo for sponsoring this episode. I've personally used the Harvest systems for both PRP and BMAC. I think it's an awesome system. Um, so check them out. We'll have the link and information for them below. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Dold. Today, I'm lucky enough to be with Dr. Don Buford. Dr. Buford, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So this is a little introduction, um, if you don't know who Dr. Buford is. Um, so he's a sports medicine specialist. He specialize in, is, specializes in orthobiologics, as well as PRP, um, and he's a arthroscopic knee and shoulder surgeon based here in Dallas. He's the director of the Dallas PRP and Stem Cell Institute, as well as the Sports Medicine Clinic of North Texas. Um, and he has a extended history in sports medicine. He grew up in Los Angeles. He attended Stanford University, I think on a baseball scholarship. Is that right? I, well, I had signed a letter of intent, but it wasn't a scholarship. But yeah. Okay, so he, he goes to Stanford after a couple of years at Stanford, transfers? Correct. was playing behind an All-American, so I had to get out. <laughs> <laughs> so he transfers down to USC. Uh, at USC, he ends up uh, receiving the Woody Hayes NCAA Division I Academic All-American Award uh, for, obviously, academics and athletics while playing baseball there. Graduates from USC and then signs a professional baseball contract with the Baltimore Orioles. Correct. Yeah. So, and I know you obviously went on to medical school, but did you mm -hmm. take a little break there to play for the Orioles? I did. It, um, in hindsight, it's not something I would have charted out, but basically yeah. when most of my pre-med classmates were going straight into medical school after college... I took that entire first year off to play professional baseball. And then I got in one year of medical school. Then I took another complete year off after my first year of medical school. And then the last year and a half or so, I had to, had to make it work through the mail and wow. flying back into town. Yeah, That's incredible. Yeah. So you also, baseball runs in the family. You are, you are the son of Don Buford Sr. Correct. Correct. And he is a pretty distinguished baseball player himself. He did, I think he, I wrote here in my notes, mm -hmm. 
about a nine-year career. He won the World Series. He played for the Chicago White Sox and the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, Dad had a long career. Um, he played, uh, I think, 10 years in the States and four years in Japan. He's in the Orioles Hall of Fame. He's in the uh, USC's Hall of Fame. Um, and after he played uh, on his own, he, he has a long history where he's been involved in baseball ever since, coaching in the minor leagues, running scouting departments for some other organizations. So Fantastic. Yeah. So you finish at, up at USC eventually after a few years in mm -hmm. the big leagues, and you transfer to University of Texas for orthopedic residency. Right. So after UCLA, I ended up coming to UT Southwestern here in Dallas for my orthopedic residency. Okay, great. And then back to California for a sports medicine fellowship at SCOE. Correct, yeah. Southern I, California Orthopedic Institute. Correct. I had an established relationship with, uh, with just the great guys that were there. And um, of course. it was always a goal of mine was to go back and do their sports fellowship. And plus it was home, so it worked out great. So what brought you then to Dallas? So what brought me back to Dallas was having been here for five years in residency, I had established um, you know, some relationships. I enjoyed sure. the city. And just had a couple offers to come back and, and work as an arthroscopist mostly, which was still relatively new back in 2000 even. Right. Uh, people weren't doing a lot of um, just arthroscopy around the shoulder especially. Yeah, that's fantastic. So that brings us to our first topic today, which is your name, Buford. Mm -hmm. So for everyone listening, anyone who knows anything about shoulder arthroscopy or the shoulder in general knows what Buford means and in specifically uh, the Buford complex. Right. Do you want to talk to us about that? Sure. That, uh, the, the true story behind, I've heard a lot of other stories, um, <laughs> when people didn't know I was sitting at the edge of the table. Right. But, uh, but the true story is when I was in high school back in LA, I had a chance in my senior year to go, um, and spend every afternoon at, um, any of the pre-approved locations on this sheet that they gave the seniors. Okay. And because this was a high school in North Hollywood, about half of the list was uh, movie business, um, uh, music business. And so a lot of my, my buddies went and hung out on movie sets or in the you know, music studio. I picked a sports medicine doc. And so his name's Dr. Steven Schneider. Of course. And at the time he was... Who is a, a huge name in shoulder arthroscopy for anyone started, that doesn't know. started... Um, uh, in a large extent, started the United States version of shoulder arthroscopy with instrumentation, and, right. and has continued to be an educator to this day. And uh, so I, I just, you know, very fortuitous to happen to be stuck with him. Yeah, <laughs> um, that worked out well. And uh, and started a relationship from the time I was seventeen on. Right. And so during one of my trips back to SCOE at his office, we were watching shoulder arthroscopy, and at that point, even as a college student, I'd already seen. A fair amount of uh, shoulder surgery and saw something on the screen that looked unusual I asked about it and, and and Steve being the way he is said I'm not sure why don't you look it up and come back and tell us and so I took that ball and kind of ran with it and worked yeah. with one of his fellows at the time and we wrote it up and and Steve with his fantastic teaching and sense of humor named it the Buford complex and it kind of stuck so that's incredible yeah so this was during your fellowship that you did this or no, this, this is way before, before. Yeah. wow this, this is before medical school even. so you were in you were almost a high college. school a college student yeah Wow, so, that is fantastic. Um, and I remember because that was a question that came up when I was interviewing for residency. Wow, was, uh, you already me, had a yeah. huge anatomic variant in yeah, the shoulder named been, after you. already been published in medical school. Yeah, because yeah, it was an arthroscopy paper, I think, in 1994. Correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah. That, that is a great, that's a yeah. great story. So, so yeah, so the Buford complex, it's the middle, uh, sorry, the it's a mm -hmm. cord-like variant of the middle glenohumeral ligament, right? Correct. And oh. I think the most... That, tell me if I'm wrong, the most important sort of 
clinical aspect of this is that if you're not familiar with this, sometimes it can be confused with the anterosuperior labrum. Right. And if you mistaken, mistake it for that and, I guess, stabilize that, that middle glenohumeral cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament to the anterior labrum, you're going to affect the external rotation of the, of, of the patient. They're going to be very, very stiff after you do that. Well, that's how we first found it. So what most people um, that, that aren't kind of in the business, so to speak, don't realize is shoulder arthroscopy is new. I mean, the, the yeah. people that started designing these instruments and even the procedures are all still working. And so we didn't really know arthroscopic shoulder anatomy back then. Right. And we didn't know all the possible variants. And so the reason this, this all came about was Dr. Schneider had two or three patients in a row that had had instability surgery. And in going back and looking at what they had before and after and what got them better, uh, we decided that this Buford complex, um, such as it's named, was actually a normal variant. And we put a percentage on it, between 2 and 4% of the population yeah. have it. And the take-home message is exactly what you said. Don't, don't operate on it. Look for other pathology. Right. Um, and then over the years, there's been some other associated things with yeah. younger instability. So patients. really, really funny as well that while we're here, I just had a book chapter published in the Biceps and Superior Labral Complex, and it's, it's, ex, it's an extended title, but it says a type 2 slap tear in a 22-year-old male with an associated Buford complex mm-hmm. treated with slap repair with care to avoid over-constraining anteriorly. That's, I couldn't have written it better myself. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so we wrote this up in, yeah, uh, when I was perfect. in my fellowship. And uh, yeah. yeah, so now we, here we are talking. So that's great. I guess what initially attracted me to Dr. Buford was um, on we became friends or whatever it's called on LinkedIn. And he is at the forefront or the, uh, the leading edge of orthobiologics, which is probably the biggest topic in sports medicine today, how we can embrace platelet-rich plasma, mesenchymal stem cells either derived from bone marrow aspirate concentrate or adipose tissue and use this to maybe get around surgery, help treat these injuries non-operatively to avoid patients going under the knife. And it's certainly getting a lot of attention in sports medicine, um, this whole stem cell topic. So Dr. Buford, if you don't follow him on, on LinkedIn, you should, because he is, he, you're, you're, I would say you're, you're fairly outspoken when it comes to the compliance and regulatory issues around this. Is that fair to say? That's very fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a breath of fresh air, I think in this market where, you know, you have all these stem cell clinics popping up all over the place and you are certainly one of the voices that looks into the compliance side of things. And that's, that's, that's very uh, refreshing, I would say. So that's going to bring us to our first, first topic today, which is orthobiologics. So Dr. Buford and I were recently invited as faculty to the TOBI conference, and that was in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago. Um, TOBI stands for the Orthobiologics Institute. And it's where we sort of get together some of the world leaders in, in orthobiologics, and we go through the literature and talk about new stuff that's, that's emerging. So um, one of the things that we chatted about, about there was um, your paper that's coming out. Mm-hmm. And this is a, tell me if I'm wrong, I think it's partial thickness rotator cuff tears, mm-hmm. looking at treating these tears with bone marrow-derived uh, mesenchymal stem cells, so mm-hmm. BMAC, bone mm-hmm. marrow aspirate concentrate. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So, you know, for me, in trying to decide where to place orthobiologics into an orthopedic practice, I think the the most reasonable thing, at least for my approach, is to look at areas where I don't have a good solution. If I have a solution for someone's problem that already gives us a 95% success rate, I'm probably not going to start there and try and add something to that. Sure. But if I've got a a patient with a problem where it's 50-50, 
or, um, or the normal healing process hasn't happened or, or the normal healing process takes a long time, those tend to be the areas where I want to at least consider orthobiologics because I think the biology of it is, makes sense. It's just a matter of where to place it. Right. And so for a, for a shoulder surgeon, for, for me, uh, partial thickness rotator cuff tears in, in the, an active population uh, that are symptomatic is an area where, where we don't really have a, a great simple answer. You know, traditionally it's been maybe a steroid shot, uh, maybe some physical therapy. If it gets better, come back and see me. Hopefully, patient doesn't come back because they get back to whatever functional level they're happy with. Right. Uh, but a lot of people are out there accepting a lower level of function because they don't want to have surgery. Right. And so using, using in this case, bone marrow-derived stem cells, or BMC, which stands, for again, for bone marrow concentrate, the thought was, wouldn't it be great if we could have something we could do in the office in about 45 minutes that we know has biologic activity that may actually stimulate a healing response that we otherwise don't have a way to stimulate short of surgery. Okay. And so the goal was to take some of those patients whose tears are progressing because they're young and active and ultimately needing surgery and take the percentage of those people and never have them come to the operating room. So a little bit counterintuitive if the business card says surgeon, but the ultimate goal is to get people better the simplest way possible. And so that's what we started with a study in 2016. Uh, the, the plan was to enroll 25 patients and we've got one more to go. Um, it also gives you an idea of how long these clinical studies take. So yeah. we're two years in, we've got 25 enrolled because the criteria are very tight. We just want um, just one tear in the, in the rotator cuff, just supraspinatus tears, um, no significant arthritis or other kind of confounding you know, sure. diagnoses. And we're taking those patients, we're doing a, a single in-office injection of bone marrow, autologous, meaning it comes from their own body, Yep. Um, bone marrow derived stem cells we do it all in the office in about 45 minutes we inject it under ultrasound guidance and then we follow them um, you know, over the next year so the study has one year follow-up we follow their pain levels we follow their functional level and and as importantly we follow their mri scans at six months in a year okay yeah any sort of interim results you can you can tell us about yeah so one of the there, there's a lot of interesting things that are coming out of that study as you would expect the um the structural data to date is not showing that we're getting structural healing. Okay. So I think at a year, which is probably the fairest subset to talk about, at one year we've got, I think, 13 MRIs completed. So of those 13, there's probably five or six that I think are arguably better. Okay. Most of them are the same. Okay. But I think there's only one. There's one patient that's gone, only one patient's gone on to surgery out of all of the 23, but I think there's just one MRI that it's clearly gotten worse. Right. And so that may end up, and it's early, but that may end up being the conclusion is that we have a way to at least slow the progression because I think, you know, before doing this procedure, I think a higher percentage, just in my 18 years of doing this, that a higher percentage of people would have had tear progression. Yeah. Because um, again, these are young, active, average age is like 52, 53. Okay. Um, these are not retired people that aren't lifting weights and now are you stratifying the patients at all in terms of their tear yeah. are you saying that these tears have to be less than 50 percent thickness for example no we um that's a good question because we, we went round and round about how to how to make it a good study without trying to be right because you know, for for people listening i guess that's sort of one of the yeah. uh indications we use to maybe convert a partial thickness tear into a full tear and repair the tear right uh, and that's that 50% cutoff based on the coronal cuts on the MRI. Right. And so we, um, 
the final paper will stratify that, but the entry criteria were all it's all MRI based. So even though I do a lot of ultrasound, the actual uh, preoperative imaging has to be MRI so we can get a kind of a more uniform measure. Um, and so we're taking people from measured 25% up to really 85 or even 90%, just uh, no full thickness. Interesting. Here. Okay. So within that group, we'll see what percentage were 50% or above. And again, we're, we're getting all of these blinded and read by people that are, that are sure. radiologists and separately, um, you know. And in terms of the actual bone marrow procedure, where mm -hmm. are you getting the bone marrow from? What area of their body? So, so I take all of uh, the bone marrow from the posterior iliac crest. Right. And we do that because that's the highest concentration of mesenchymal stem cells in the human body. Correct. So yep. all of the central, so vertebral bodies or sternum, um, those, are, those are sites that um, you know, veterinarians, for example, will use the sternum a lot for horses. But in humans, that's not a very comfortable place to access. Of course. And there's not a lot of volume. So, so posterior iliac crest, or, or even anterior iliac crest, but of the two, I think posterior yeah. is safer and more comfortable. Yeah. So we use posterior iliac crest regardless of what we're treating. Good. Yeah. I use the PSIS as well yeah. for, I think, all of mine. Yeah. Because there's a, a, it's certainly the highest concentration of uh, colony-forming units. Correct. And I think there was that pub study published in JBGS in 2013, I think, that mm -hmm. compared the anterior to the posterior crest, and the mm -hmm. posterior crest wins by about a factor of two. Yeah. And so, if, you, if you go more peripheral to tibia or calcaneus or even proximal humerus, it drops right. even more. Yeah, it's yeah. much better. Yeah. Okay, so that's 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 pretty good. And you're doing the injections under ultrasound. You're yep. pretty pretty candy with the ultrasound, as we saw in Vegas. But you're you're using the ultrasound to inject. A absolutely. If you're a sports doc and you don't have ultrasound, you need to get ultrasound. Yeah, <laughs> it's so useful in the office. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, so that is good. I look forward to seeing those results published. So the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is something that I didn't really know too much about. I didn't really think it was going to catch on but based on some of the stuff that was presented at toby it looks like it it might and that is this concept of these intraosseous injections mm -hmm. so just a little bit of background if someone comes in with with osteoarthritis of their knee for instance mm -hmm. historically we've been injecting into the knee mm -hmm. now there's been this new i suppose modality to try and treat these uh, subcortical bone marrow lesions or bruises, basically changes that you see on the T2 cuts on the MRI mm -hmm. with, with something called a subchondroplasty, which I think it's a, it's a, the name is taken as you are well aware of, but <laughs> we can talk about that in a second. <laughs> but, uh, uh, it's basically sticking a needle, not into the joint, but into the subcortical bone Correct. and injecting a substance. So sometimes you can people, People over the last few years, it's been published actually injecting calcium phosphate, mm -hmm. which is bone cement. Mm -hmm. Now the theory is instead of using bone cement, let's inject stem cells or bone marrow aspirate concentrate or maybe even PRP. Mm -hmm. And that will somehow have an effect on the symptoms that this patient is having, uh, I guess, intraarticularly with the Mm -hmm. rationale being that this is not just a joint pathology, this is a subcortical bone pathology, that's arthritis. Yeah, uh, there's, there's some really good data, and it's something that, at least when I was coming through training, it wasn't part of our journal clubs. Some of it wasn't there, but, but some of it does go back a decade. And, and what we have seen, um, if you look, is that stem cells start to diminish in quantity and quality over time. And stem cells in that subchondral location are important for cartilage and joint health. And so it's not 
too much of a leap to think that if the stem cells that are responsible for those things are becoming less functional and less in number, that there might be a procedure where replacing that number um, is beneficial clinically. And then you look at some clinical studies, like there's, a, there's a French surgeon named Philippe Hernigau who looked at rotator cuff tears, chronic rotator cuff tears. And he looked at the stem cell count in the proximal humerus, right where the tendon was torn from. And all of those patients had significantly lower stem cells in the bone compared to the other side where the tendon wasn't torn. And so it becomes a chicken or egg question. Did the tendon tear because there were fewer stem cells to help in right. chronic healing? Or, or was it vice versa? Did they go away because the tendon tore? Sure. So either way, in his next paper where he put stem cells back into the bone, he reported a 100% healing rate along with the surgical repair. So, so numbers that, that um, are better than most other studies for just pure rotator cuff repair without augmenting and kind of replacing the stem cell bank, if you will, which, which would be the subchondral bone. Um, you can look at the similar, um, similar type of effect around the knee where um, they've done some elegant studies. And just to, to grossly simplify, if we're trying to find out where stem cells are really working, for example, if we inject a knee with stem cells, are they becoming cartilage or are they promoting that person's own native stem cells in the knee to make more cartilage? Right. Or the chondrocytes, for that matter, to, to develop and become more active. Right. And so wouldn't it be a cool experiment if you could take one species knee, like let's just say a goat knee, I'm going to simplify the study, yeah. a goat knee and put in horse stem cells and then see what the new cartilage was. Well, if you have a goat knee and goat cartilage and you put in horse stem cells, you get goat cartilage. Right. You don't get horse cartilage. Right. So the horse stem cells are promoting the native stuff to grow more. And that also tends to support the idea of putting stem cells back into the subchondral location to stimulate what's already there, the, the mechanism that's already there, just to get it revved up again. Yeah. And so, so given that, the intraosseous or, or subchondral location um, seems to make sense. And, and there's now some clinical data to support that. The, there was a study published at the beginning of this year in January looking at a very young patient cohort, but it was 60 knees with 12-year follow-up. And the beauty of this study was these were patients that had steroid-induced AVN of their knee. And on one side, they had a knee replacement. On the other knee, at the same time, they had an uh, intraosseous subchondral stem cell injection with bone marrow concentrate. Follow those patients for 12 years, 20% of the knee replacement patients had to have a, at least one additional surgery. Um, 70% preferred the biologic knee. Right. Okay. It, with similar decreases in pain and increases in function. Right. So now you have a, a single procedure that's much less invasive. So this is patients with bilateral AVN. Bilateral. And so it was, a, it was a great internal control to do one knee biologic, one knee with knee replacement. Right. And so studies like that are, 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 are I think, really strong, you know, persuasive arguments to try just an intraosseous type of therapy for somebody who's got... Uh, that type of bone marrow lesion. This is not the bone marrow edema that you see after an acute injury. These are patients that have chronic degenerative changes and have developed these these areas where stem cells are, are missing. So would you place a, let's just think about a patient here, let's just say a 60-year-old presents to your clinic mm -hmm. who has grade two and three changes throughout their knee. Mm -hmm. Is this someone you would consider for an intraosseous injection? It, uh, the short answer is yes. If they have an identifiable bone marrow lesion, on an MRI scan, then I think you could certainly make that argument. I don't think, um, I think, I think you could do that and expect them to do well. The question that none of us really know is if you only do an intraarticular 
what the delta is, what the difference is in their clinical outcome. Right. So if somebody comes in to me... I think that's a great trial. I think it's a fantastic trial. Comparing intraarticular to intraosseous and maybe even a third cohort of of doing it both. Now, uh, that same surgeon, Philippe Hernigo, has an average age of 80 patient population in one study where all he did was intraosseous. And they reported significant improvement, greater than 50% clinical improvement in pain. Didn't do an intraarticular at all. Yeah. So, because I think at Toby, some people were saying put half of it into intraosseously yeah. and then half into the joint. Yeah, I, I think that's a study that's that's begging to be done, and you know it may vary by joint. Yeah. Because we all know that the shoulder, for example, can accept a lot more degenerative change with a less decrease in function than a knee, for example. Right. And so it may be that in the knee, it makes more sense to go after those bone marrow lesions earlier than in the shoulder, for example. Right. Are you doing any of those right now? I've done mostly the knee. I haven't done any shoulder yet because my results with intraarticular shoulder injections are good. Okay. And so it goes back to if I have a procedure that's working pretty well, right. I need some pretty compelling reason to do something more invasive sure. at this point. But in the knee, I think there's room to, to improve. Yeah, Yeah. no. I, I, we've studied PRP almost, I, I'm not going to say to death because these mm-hmm. studies still keep on emerging. There's been a, you know, a huge explosion in the literature for PRP for treating arthritis, mainly in the knee. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think now we've got bone marrow aspirate concentrate. Some of the results mm-hmm. on knee OA have been mixed. Um, there was a, just a study published a few months ago in AGSM where they took patients with bilateral knee OA, one knee got saline, one knee got BMAC, yeah. and at a year, the, the, there was absolutely no difference in terms right. of the outcome. So I think both knees improved a little bit, but there was, you know, yeah. studies like that come out and, the, and, and you know, the, the people that are, you know, debating this and questioning where its utility are going to say, look, here's a study where water produced the same results as BMAC. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to, to get around those sorts of uh, papers and results, but I think we're trying, and, and as, this, as our knowledge around these, these topics starts to improve, we're going to get better and better. I think we will. There, there's a definite dose-response curve that's going to be harder to work out than a typical medication because it's a human Absolutely. element to it. I'm always, yeah. I'm always talking to people about this, particularly PRP for arthritis. I think that's a mm-hmm. very simple one. We know that it works, but you know, how much do you do? First of all, do you do leukocyte reduced mm-hmm. or, or uh, leukocyte rich? I think mm-hmm. that we know a little bit about that through Brian Cole's paper. We're going to interview mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks, but mm-hmm. um, you know, we think it's leukocyte reduced. Okay, so how much blood do you draw to re- to to produce that leukocyte reduced uh, right. formulation? How many injections do you do? Right. How much PRP do you inject with each? injection there's got to be a sweet spot there where too much is bad for the knee but too little doesn't produce the effect you want how many injections do you do how much time do you wait between these injections there are so many factors to consider that it's going to take years and years for this stuff to be borne out in the literature yeah i think that's the that's probably the best argument for all of us that are interested to use registries um you know whatever registry you want to use but to, to have some way to collect your data and to quantify as best you can. So with PRP, if any of us are interested in that, we can have those machines in the office, or we can quantify, you know, the the, the platelet concentration and leukocyte rich versus poor, and that doesn't take very long to get that information at the time of treatment. With a stem cell procedure, it's much harder because to really get the the actual CFU count, you've got to culture it and you've got to right. go through some other steps with flow cytometry, and and if you're really going to be specific even go through trilineage differentiation. But 
but uh, and not, I mean, who has the you know the you means to do, do that? You, you just can't, can't do it. It's a thousand dollars a patient just to do that culturing type of work. But right. I think ultimately we may use something like a total nucleated cell count for our BMC to, yeah. to give us a measure of how if it was a good aspiration or not. But but for PRP, we have the ability to quantify a lot better than we're doing right now. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to call everything PRP when it ranges from 1.2 times baseline all the way up to 15 times baseline. Right. Because somewhere in that broad spectrum, it may work and it may not work depending on the indication. Right. And I mean, there's really nothing to tell us in the literature. You can't read this stuff in a textbook that says this is what you should do for this patient that has this grade OA. Yeah, it's no, just not It's just not out there. No, you have to find the papers that did the best job quantifying that have results and try and match those at this point. Right, so, you know, exactly. There's things around the elbow. In NEOA, there's actually a fair number of level one studies in NEOA with PRP. And, yeah. You know, look at the good ones and see what they did where it's quantified, and that's what I do. I try and match what's the best published literature. Me as well, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. So that sort of brings us into our next topic that I want to talk to you about is these regulatory issues and compliance around this new space of orthobiologics. And as we said earlier, I think you're fairly outspoken when it comes to that. And it's, and it's, it's, it's awesome. So we are seeing right now, there's the emergence of these stem cell clinics everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I guess you could say stem cells with quotation marks, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people, I mean, even in my clinic, I'm having people show up and say, yeah, I got a, I got a stem cell injection in my knee and it, and it didn't quite work. I get an x-ray of their knee and it's bone on bone arthritis and I'm going, okay, so who did you get this stem cell injection from? And then they tell me that it was an amniotic fluid injection that they paid $5,000 for. Mm-hmm. See that a lot. So the, um, what's been troubling, at least what was troubling for me getting into orthobiologics was uh, I had exact same experience. And that's where most of our colleagues in orthopedic surgery stop. They hear that, they see patients that tell them that and they get they they are get get frustrated by hearing that because we know that's not right um and the the, it's a cash pay business you know for the most part this is not covered by insurance carriers there's starting to be some groundswell of of uh self-funded insurance companies that are starting to look at these orthobiologic procedures and so we may start to see some coverage there first but by and large it's a non-covered um procedure by most private payers and as a result, it's a cash pay business. And like every other cash pay business, it attracts people that like cash. It's right. the bottom line. Yeah. And, and I don't mean doctors. I mean anybody who's took an economics course at some point in their life yeah. will be interested to it. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I had a patient just the other day who gave me this story. And I said, who's the, uh, who's the doctor that did this? And they gave me, oh, it's Dr. So-and-so. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled up my computer in clinic and I... And just for in my own interest, Googled that person. Yeah. Turns out that it wasn't a doctor. It was a physician assistant mm-hmm. that did took them through this whole spiel about stem cells, did the injection there, mm-hmm. and they, they weren't actually even seeing a, a medical doctor. Yeah, it's, you know, for me, it, it goes back to what my grandfather used to always say, and most of our elders that were giving us good advice, which is if it sounds too good to be true, it's not. And, and the other thing in healthcare is is know who's treating you. And so I have a whole list of questions when we give seminars to, to have people ask, you know, who's the doctor? What's their training? Um, there are some clinicians that are able, and to back step for a minute, the reason is you don't have to have an orthopedic training at all to do this, right. which I think is wrong if you're treating an orthopedic problem. So, so, you know, if your doctor is trained in family practice, that may be great. They, they may have some additional orthopedic training, 
But if they're two years out of graduating in a family practice residency and now they're talking to you about doing a spinal injection with amniotic stem cells, it might be worth getting at least a second opinion. Exactly. And, yeah. and like anything else, I mean, you know, I'm a surgeon as well. If someone told me I needed any major procedure, I mean, at least get one other opinion. So sure. what we tell people is to make that second opinion somebody who's at least got orthopedic training if you've already seen someone else that hasn't. Right. Um, but uh, with it being a cash pay business, there are, there are companies that have been set up around the country, these networks, to teach non-surgeons how to profit from adding a stem cell business uh, to their clinic. Sure. And so regardless of what their degree is in, whether they're chiropractors or, for that matter, MD, DO, or, or, or anything, um, there are seminars set up where the stem cell business is treated purely as a service line, as if you were selling a new chair, okay, right. a new fancy expensive chair. And, and they're taught how to close the sale. And the tip-off is what you would expect. The agenda is how to handle objections, how to close the sale, um, how many people you need to see to make you know, X thousands of dollars a month. Nothing on the agenda is what's the evidence, what's the medicine, how do you do an injection properly. And so you know, that's the tip-off that it's not a medical procedure. And, sure. and those are places to be careful of. And our, our FDA ha has been behind the eight ball because they're, they're not a well-funded enforcement organization. You know, if they want something enforced, they have to go to the Justice Department. Um, they've got a, a little more um, uh, power now, um, but they just released some final, regula uh, final regulations in November of 2017 to help provide even more clarity in this orthobiologic field. And the FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, who's a doctor, um, who, who was familiar with stem cells and orthobiologics before he became commissioner, has uh, done a fantastic job, in my opinion, of ramping up enforcement and trying to go after people that are truly doing dangerous things um, and, and calling it a, a stem cell procedure. So uh, the FDA has kind of been on the, on the side of the uh, patient in terms of protection, as they should be. As yeah. they should be, and yet still allow some of this to progress. And so Congress has given them a few more tools with these RMAT designations, which in a nutshell is a way to fast track a new therapy to market. But it still requires essentially some peer review and some oversight. You shouldn't be able to just claim that you're doing something um, in an ad or on the news or in a seminar and, and then be able to go out and do that if you're doing something that clearly has no scientific basis. Right. So, um, so we beat the drum about that fairly regularly at our meetings. Um, the FDA has given us some pretty good gu guidelines, and the reason why I use bone marrow-derived stem cells is because the FDA has said for years now that bone marrow is a, um, a non-regulated source of stem cells. So as long as you don't add anything to bone marrow, and as long as it's autologous from, from your own body, and as long as you don't culture stem cells... Yep then the FDA doesn't even consider that a regulatory uh, issue. Right. As it's, opposed not a, to, it's not a drug. It's not a drug. As opposed to all the other things that people use in orthobiologics. Uh, not talking about PRP, but you know, amniotic tissue, umbilical cord tissue, placental tissue, all those things, if they do in fact have living cells, are biologic drugs. And the FDA wants to regulate those, needs to regulate those. Right. So just basically on that note, mm. we have all of these products of conception. I think you could mm -hmm. broadly categorize them as you got amniotic fluid cells mm -hmm. or not cells, amniotic fluid 
tissue, amniotic tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got products of the placenta, placental-derived tissue. Mm-hmm. And these are, a lot of what we're seeing are being marketed as stem cells. Do you want to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? That, you know, stem cells is the sexy thing in the media. Yeah. And so, um, and, and as a cash pay procedure at, at, at our course, and we pull the audience... The average price across the country for a stem cell injection is about five thousand dollars. Okay, five to eight thousand dollars is probably the range for like one joint. And so, the however, in order to get stem cells properly, you have to have some training. You have to know anatomy. You have to be, you have to be allowed to go into the human body, especially if you're doing a bone marrow aspiration. And there's many specialists that don't have the ability to do that. Um, because they don't have the training. And so what they're marketed to, what, what these seminars teach them, is, well, we can get stem cells out of a bottle. We can just draw one cc of an amniotic product or an umbilical cord product, and that's what makes it attractive to those particular clinicians, is now we have something on the shelf. We don't ever have to do anything but draw up a cc of fluid and inject it into the knee and charge those prices for it. And so that's where it came from. Now, there's some science behind it. There, there can be stem cells and living cells in those products. Most of those studies that I've seen are at the time of delivery. Right. Very few of those studies actually quantify living stem cells at the time of delivery in a doctor's office after those products have been frozen to below 100 degrees Celsius. Right. So I think this has been studied as well. This is sort of anecdotal evidence at this mm-hmm. point. It'll probably emerge soon. But there have been people out there that have that have studied the, and there are, I, I'm going to take a guess here, hundreds mm-hmm. of amniotic fluid or amniotic tissue samples out there from a variety of different vendors, and I think they're they've been studied and found that there's actually not not only no stem cells but no cells whatsoever mm-hmm. in these products. Now, mm-hmm. I think that's probably vendor specific of where you're going. Maybe there are some products that do have some stem cells in them. I, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I know that they they are rich in growth factors. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you were to compare it, maybe it's a fair comparison would be something like PRP, which doesn't have any mesenchymal-derived stem cells, but it is certainly a rich source of growth factors. Mm-hmm. So, if you are going to market these, I think, is it, is it would it be fair? Would you agree with me that it's okay to call it a growth factor type of injection rather than a stem cell injection. Yeah, I, I think I think that's the, the fairest way to do it because I, I get accused of being anti-conception products, right. and that's not it at all. I, I'm against the way they're marketed unless there's data to support the way they're marketed. And, and what happens is um, they're marketed as stem cell injections partly because of what the clinician is charged to buy them. The clinician is charged way more than what a PRP injection costs to buy those. And so otherwise... Uh, the clinician could, could, could match the PRP prices. I think the best comparison is to PRP. Um, the, uh, there are companies out there that have marketed these products, in my opinion, correctly from day one. And it begs the question of if company A has an amniotic product that they readily admit when they study it has no living stem cells and company B has the similar product and they claim they've got 5 million stem cells per cc. And so there's a real disconnect, sure. You know, in, in how two companies approach it. And there's one company which I'll name because it's public uh, knowledge. My medics has has taken the extra step of getting one of those fast track RMAT designations for their amniotic fluid product. They've never claimed living cellular material in it, 
and even even beyond living cells, it's also a non-homologous product. And so they went to the FDA, got an RMAT designation. They're one of 19, I think, that have been granted in this country yep. so far. And it's a specific indication for knee arthritis. But now they can sell it and study it, and that's the right approach. It's interesting that the FDA provides a mechanism for companies to get a right answer. So what we get via email or phone calls is, it's been studied. Our legal has said it's okay. Well, that's really not good enough. Right. Um, if you really want to, to paper it up and be the first company on the market with an allograft living cell product that's FDA cleared um, as it's currently marketed, then all you have to do, there, there's two ways to do it. We, I posted on my website and on my blogs. A company can send it into the FDA, describe the process, and within about six months, the FDA will say this is appropriately registered or it's not. And to date, no company's done that. And so you have to ask why. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're running out of time. We're going to go quickly through a few case examples here right. and just to get your thoughts, and then we'll, we'll finish at that. So first example, 55-year-old healthy guy. He comes to you. He's complaining of shoulder pain. You do an exam. You think an MRI is necessary, so you order an MRI of his shoulder, and it shows he's got some bursitis and a partial thickness rotator cuff tear involving the supraspinatus tendon. Let's say it's around 50%. Mm -hmm. So, so that's right in the, the sweet spot for the, the, the patient population that we're studying because uh, traditionally that patient comes into the office and I should preface most everything I do, we've been through the conservative things. And so step number one, if that's his first visit and this just started being symptomatic a few weeks ago, we may give him some anti-inflammatories. We may put him on a physical therapy program, bring him back in a month, see if it made a difference because that's the easiest thing to do and that'll get a certain percentage of people better, which is great. Yep. We all know there's lots of people with partial tears and even full thickness tears that have full range of motion, may not even hurt. Don't need anything. Don't need yep. anything. And so just like that's not an automatic indication for surgery, it shouldn't be an automatic indication for orthobiologics either, of course. in my yep. opinion. Having said that, if we're now at a point where we've tried that and we need to do something else, that's where the gap's been in, in my shoulder practice because something else usually goes way down to the end of the list of let's do an arthroscopic surgery and complete the tear and fix it. Right. Well, now I, I think I would at least present the data to these someone in that category, that age range and 50% and, and tear. We can try a BMC injection. Um, I can't promise you it's going to heal the tendon. Right. But we may be able to slow progression. And this is if I was talking to them today with what I know. It looks like we can slow the progression of the tear and, and have you back at your regular activity level with no pain. Right. Because that's what we're seeing so far. And I think the alternative we have right now is a corticosteroid injection, which, right. you know, a, a BMC, yes, you can make the argument it's expensive, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not crossing off any bridges mm -hmm. like you might be able to say a corticosteroid injection will do mm -hmm. in terms of the progression of this tear mm -hmm. that potentially this patient converts to a full thickness tear. Now you're in there arthroscopically trying to repair cuff tissue down to bone mm -hmm. in a patient that's had two, three steroid injections where the tissue is just, you, you, everyone knows what, how hard that is. And I think that's part of the problem, especially with rotator cuff tears. You know, it's something that we haven't really been able to get right. Yeah. And a lot of these patients, they're chronic tears. They've had previous steroid injections and the tissue is terrible. There was a great paper and I, I don't have the reference on the tip of my tongue, but this was presented this past uh, season at the cherry blossom course. And it was looking at the question of how many steroid injections is too many with shoulder surgery. And they crunched a large database and found that the complications that started to occur happened after the first. So starting with the second steroid injection, if you had surgery within the year, your complication rate was higher. Right. So it may be that you may want to try one and see if that works. 
but if, uh, I have a hard time giving a second steroid shot now. Good. Yeah. I, I, I'm yeah. totally on board with that. I agree yeah. with you 100%. Yeah. Okay, so that would be something that they, could, they could try. It's not mm-hmm. crossing off any bridges, and it might actually, mm-hmm. we'll see in your paper, produce some, some better results. Longer term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Patient two, we're going to say it's a 60-year-old guy. He comes to you. Uh, he's got grade two, three changes in all three compartments in his knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's complaining of knee pain, but like most patients these days, you know, 60 is the new 45 or 50, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to avoid the dreaded total knee arthroplasty. If, if a patient has mid-grade, so let's say, you know, with our classification scheme, KL2 or even KL3, um, that's Kelgren Lawrence. Kelgren class, Lawrence classification of yes. OA. Yep. Um, if they have that level of digi- so uh, for for the non you know orthopedists, so they don't have true bone on bone, right? Which shape. which would be grade two, yeah. grade three, yeah. Right. So for that patient, that's the patient where I think we have the best chance with a bone marrow derived you know mesenchymal stem cell type of procedure to a give them pain relief. But we also know that there are some proteins in our bone marrow. These metalloproteinases, they have abbreviations like TIMP, for example, that do affect the progression of cartilage breakdown. And so I will never tell anyone, in fact, it's one of our pet peeves, to have patients told that it's going to reverse their arthritis. I think that's a big mistake. You shouldn't tell people that. Right. But I will tell people we do know there are some biologically active things in bone marrow that will slow the progression. And so if you've got mid-grade arthritis and you're in that age range, that may be a patient where we at least have the discussion about an intraarticular injection. If they have a, a, a targetable bone marrow lesion, that might be another patient to try a subchondral injection of, uh, of, of an orthobiologic as well. Are you going to push that patient one way or another in terms of PRP versus BMAC? In terms of the intraarticular, I'm going to, I tend to Push is a strong word for me because you. Sure. I, I feel like I'm talking people do you, out of do everything. Favor, yeah. <laughs> do you favor one or the other? I would favor BMAC in that category. How come? Because the fact they still have some preserved cartilage where I think it's a valid goal to try and prevent that progression. Okay. And so, you don't think that PRP is going to do that? No, because PRP doesn't have those levels of, of the temp proteins. And it also doesn't have the elevated levels of IRAP. And, and for example, an alpha-2 macroglobulin, sure. which are yep. some other things that we know are active in this process. So just to, as a final thought on that, my father, who's 82 and has had a total knee, is at the end stage. He's bone on bone. Yeah. So for him, I actually I pushed him towards PRP because there's no benefit. Just give him some he, symptomatic relief. Right. He gets six to nine months and he's good. Right. right. There's no goal of preventing progression. He's at the end of the line. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So BMAC over PRP in that situation. If there's, if there's a valid goal for that. Yeah. Good. Okay. So we're going to do one final case here. Let's go a little bit younger. Uh, 17-year-old mm-hmm. patient comes to you. They're a pitcher in high school. Um, they are hitting high velocity, so they're getting into the 90s. Um, but they've recently had an elbow injury. And I think we're seeing an epidemic of this in the United States right now. So it comes to you, let's say, for his second opinion. He saw another surgeon in town who had recommended reconstruction of this ulnar collateral ligament. He's, he mm-hmm. presents with his MRI, and it shows a partial thickness tear of the UCL tendon in his elbow. Yeah. Um, and he's here to see you. Yeah, that, unfortunately, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's becoming epidemic almost. Um, and, and this and, is in throwing athletes in the United States and the Tommy John procedure. Right, exactly right. And so, and even in the pediatric literature, it's it's becoming quite validated that people that specialize in one sport at an early age and then over-practice that sport are actually 
um, getting a much higher rate of injury. And if it's a throwing athlete, it usually happens around the elbow um, if we're talking about baseball. So, you know, the surgery for that, uh, there's well-described surgery for it. Problem is to have that surgery while you're still growing. Um, And I've seen patients as young as 13 with that diagnosis, which is scary. And, 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 and also with the same recommendation of uh, surgery. And so uh, they may make their way into our office more because we do orthobiologics than because I'm an orthopedic surgeon. And that's a situation where the alternative, I think, is well-defined and doesn't have a great outcome. That's not a surgery where 90% get back to throwing without symptoms, especially if you're talking about a 16, 17-year-old. Right. And so I usually counsel those patients and parents that, if we try a BMC injection or even multiple PRP, but in that situation, I think there may be an arguable advantage for, for putting some cells there too, Right. Um, that there's really no downside. And we haven't really hit on it, but we've really seen no real downside from these orthobiologic injections. Okay, the biggest downside is either that it doesn't work, which is rare. There's a financial downside, which yep. I count, some don't, but I, I count the fact that if someone pays hard-earned money for something, of course, where it was never gonna work. So, so I, I think we do, we do a, a BMC injection for these ulnar collateral ligaments. We've done maybe nine or ten. Um, it, our results anecdotally, have, how, anecdotally, how the, the younger patients have done great. In fact, the highest stem cell counts I've ever recorded have been on my 13, 14 year olds because they're young and they've got great marrow. They want to heal, but they actually do have a structural problem. But uh, uh, I, I certainly think it's worth a shot in that age range. And even even when you get into the professional athletes, you're seeing that happen more and more. They're getting a tried in orthobiologic first. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Give us a little bit, a couple minutes on what you're doing right now, how people can get in to see you. Oh, sure. So my office is uh, basically in central Dallas, and our contact info is is on the website at dallasprpandstemcell.com. And if you need a phone number, it's just 214-385-4860. We're in the office virtually every day, and and uh, we really see our role as being um, you know, teachers more than surgeons or doctors even. Right. We just want to give people as much information as they need to make the right decision for themselves. And I'm going to say that if you are interested in orthobiologics, you should link up with, I don't, I don't know what it's called. Do you follow or do you be a friend? But you should link up with Dr. Buford mm-hmm. on LinkedIn because he is posting some of the leading edge stuff, whether it's just new papers that are coming out or regulatory or compliance issues, you're sort of leading the charge, I would say, there. Well, thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to talk with you here. Thanks so much for, for yeah. being here. This has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sports Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to stay updated on future podcast episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Like and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Next episode, Dr. Dold sits down for an exciting interview with the legendary orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush University, Dr. Brian Cole. A special thanks to our sponsors, Taruma BCT and Star Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. This episode was edited by me, Victoria Wickham, and produced by Josh Jones. See you next time on the Sports Medicine Podcast.